We live in an age of boasters. We live in an age of boastful men and, and boastful women. I mean, it's hard not to think of Donald Trump. <laughs> when you think of great boasters of, of men, both in business and in politics, of course, the other side is just as guilty of boasting. We live in an age where men and women want to remove the phrase, in God we trust, from the bills of uh, U.S. dollars, for example. And I'm not as familiar with the boasters of Norway or maybe the countries you come from, but you know, wherever you come from, men and women boast of their glory and their greatness. They live as if they will never die Men and women, Hollywood actors, strive to immortalize themselves on the, uh, the silver screen. We live building our temples and building our lives as if we have our own little kingdom dominions. That is the way the world works. And from the perspective of God's people at times, it seems like those boasters are all powerful whether it be presidents or dictators past or present those that persecute and destroy the church are powerful because this kingdom is ruled by the prince of the power of this air to use Paul's language it seems often that they are unstoppable. It seems hopeless. How much more so the people of God who have been ravished by the Babylonians and carried off into exile and who witness with their own eyes the city of God tore brick by brick down to nothing, leveled to dust the holy temple, the very house of Yahweh, the house of I am what I am, torn down. The gold and the treasures that Solomon and David before him accumulated for the temple, taken away. The Ark of the Covenant, gone forever. The very dwelling place of God. And a wicked king, who plastered his palaces with the skins of his enemies, is ruling and reigning. Nebuchadnezzar. Wouldn't it seem like all hope is lost if you were in that situation, if we found ourselves in that? We are utterly bereft, left without home, left without a nation, without a king, without a... A people. We have now become a laughing stock and a byword to the nations. Well, it's in that environment that the book of Daniel comes to us. And like a roaring lion, Daniel proclaims the universal dominion of God over everything over every wicked king that's going to rise and fall, over every wise man and fool, the great I Am stands above it, using these people like chess pieces in a game to do his own will and his own 
bidding. But not only that, Yahweh will again restore the kingdom to his people. But it won't be a temporary kingdom that will fail. It will be an eternal kingdom that will exercise universal dominion over the earth. So you couldn't get more of a contrast from what Daniel's writing to the current perspective of God's people in Babylon. But we are given this book, and this book was given to the original audience to give them hope in the darkest day and season of despair that you could imagine. We are going to look at Daniel in two parts this morning. And just to give you an overview of the book, please turn to page 7 of your worship folder. And I want to just quickly point out the structure of Daniel. I'll let you read uh, the summary and those verses on your own. Much of that we will cover this morning. But the the outline, as you can see, is broken into two parts. Chapters 1 to 6 are stories of God's universal dominion. And we're going to explore that this morning. And the second part are visions of God's universal dominion. And the second part is filled with what we call apocalyptic literature, this bizarre literature uh, with strange images of of beasts with heads and then bodies like men and horns and all this stuff that has, uh, I would say, made some very bad theologians a lot of money and has confused the church in in the process. I'm not going to do a lot on apocalyptic literature this morning. I'm going to save that when we get to Revelation as John uses that. Uh, that genre, but I will say this morning that apocalyptic literature was a genre that was prevalent during the latter days of the prophets and then during the intertestamental period between the end of the Old Testament and the coming of Christ. This was a kind of language for, it was a subversive language for oppressed people where they could talk about the downfall of the king who's ruling over them without getting their heads chopped off in the process. So they use this kind of imagery to, uh, that's very vivid and descriptive to say, make political and spiritual messages about the current situation and beyond. But we'll touch on it, but we'll get more of it when we get to the end of the series in the book of Revelation, because John ties these things together in that book. Well, let's begin. Let's study God's universal dominion. The first thing that we will see this morning, and the first part will cover the first six chapters, is that God's dominion is universal. God's dominion is universal. The idea of kingdom is dominant in the book of Daniel. In 14 chapters... Uh, sorry, 12 chapters. There are not hidden two ex- there's not two extra hidden chapters. In 12 chapters, the word kingdom is mentioned 57 times. So it's clearly a dominant theme in the book. And the idea of dominion is mentioned 15 times 
as well in 12 chapters. And obviously kingdom and dominion, those are terms that go together. Daniel is writing to tell us that God is absolutely sovereign over the affairs of men. Even if an election is rigged, God is still sovereign over that election. God is the one who raises up kings, and he's the same one who tears them down. God exercises absolute sovereignty over the universe. His dominion is universal. It is absolute. And we find some very profound statements about this in the first six chapters. I'll give you a few examples. In chapter 2, verse 20, Daniel says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. So here, Daniel emphatically tells us that it is God to whom belongs wisdom, who belongs strength, might, who orchestrates the nature of the season for good or ill. He's the one who causes rain to fall or dries up the cisterns. He's the one who drives the electrical prices sky high in Norway and the one who will bring them back down. He is the one who is over the war in Ukraine and the madness of Putin. And he's the one who will take him down. Just as he has taken others down before. He's the one who gives you skill for your job. He's the one who puts money in your bank account. He's the one who takes it away at his will. He is the one who gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He knows the deep things and he brings to light what dwells in darkness. I'll give you another example of these profound statements of God's universal dominion. Nebuchadnezzar himself, in chapter 4, verse 3, declares, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Nations rise and nations fall but his kingdom endures forever. And God's people are in the midst of watching a series of empires rise and fall before their very eyes. It's it's Assyria first, and then Babylon, and then it's going to go on to the Medo-Persians. Egypt will rise again. Syria will rise. Then the Roman Empire will come. All of this is going to happen, the rise and fall of nations. And all of it 
is according to God's plan and God's kingdom is the straight line that rules over all of it from the dawn of time to the end of the world. In chapter 4, verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar again speaks and he says in the second half of verse 34, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Man has no moral high ground over Yahweh. No moral high ground to judge God by whether his ways are good or evil. And yet this good God is declared to have a dominion that's everlasting and to account all the inhabitants of the earth as nothing. He does according to his will in heaven and on earth. And I will tell you, Christian, the most important development in your early Christian life is to be able to embrace the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. You will never mature as a Christian if you do not come to terms with the fact that God is sovereign and that he does what he wants with us and that he is good and just in the process and we do not have the brain power to understand or solve the problem of evil. But there are many Christians and sadly even many pastors who say, God would never will suffering for you. But that is folly. It is a lie. God does what he wants. But if we can't embrace that truth, we also cannot embrace freedom and joy for the day of suffering. Because if we don't know that, if we don't think God's in control of it, all that's left for us is depression and anxiety and worry. And God doesn't want us to have that. That's why he gives us clear emphatic statements in Scripture like this, even from the mouth of a pagan Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel wants his people to experience joy even amidst the darkness. And to do that, we must understand the sovereignty of God as he wills and as he works over all things for his good pleasure. We cannot escape the shackles of depression and the shackles of anxiety, which are so prevalent, which so many are medicated for today. We cannot escape these things if we don't come to understand and embrace the goodness and the rightness and the reality of the sovereignty of God. But we don't just see this principle of God's 
universal dominion in these statements. We also see it in these stories in the first six chapters. And I'm, I, we don't have time to go through all the stories, but I just want to point out a few things along the way, and I would commend you to read the book this week. In chapter 1, we see that it is God who gives favor and skill. We read in, in chapter 2 that it was the Lord, uh, as Daniel writes, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. So right from the beginning, we see that God is the true nation maker and king maker. And he's the one that raises him up and he'll even take his own king down and hand him over to Nebuchadnezzar. And so here God gives favor to Nebuchadnezzar against even his own people. In verse 9, we read that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So there was an, a deal with eating defiled food, and Daniel did not want to make himself unclean. Neither did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who will be mentioned at the end of the chapter. So they wanted to eat vegetables instead of the meat that was likely sacrificed to idols and unclean and unpure. And, uh, and the Lord sustains him. And, and at the end of the trial, actually, Daniel and his companions look better. They look more fit. They look more beautiful and handsome than all the others who were feasting on all the good food. And so the Lord gave Daniel favor. And the chief of the eunuchs over these guys were uh, given freedom to choose their own diet. By the way, talk about needing to embrace the sovereignty of God. Daniel and these other men were made eunuchs. They were castrated against their own will. Daniel's one of them. That's something that you just have to think about from the wider context because Daniel is speaking to the chief of the eunuchs in verse 9, and Daniel's one of the men under him. God, in his goodness, was even sovereign over that. Verse 17 we also read, as for these four youths, that's Daniel and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So even in this oppression, God was elevating his people to places of power and authority. And all of that, the text is clear, was the work of God, not their own cleverness or political gamesmanship. They were faithful to God, and God raised them up for the time. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he, he wants his dream answered. He actually threatens to execute all of his wise men if they can't tell him what his dream was. And everyone, Daniel included, was set to be executed. Uh, Daniel catch winds, uh, catches wind of this, and has a chance and gains an audience before Nebuchadnezzar and reveals the dream and the interpretation. And it's in response to this situation that Daniel proclaimed those words I just mentioned a few, blessed be the name of God forever and ever. It's he the one who changes times and seasons, removes kings, sets up kings, gives wisdom to the wise, etc., etc. Daniel delights in that. And this theme of God's universal dominion comes up in each of these stories in one way or another. In chapter 3, we learn that God is the Lord of nature and the deliverer of his 
people. And King Nebuchadnezzar raises up this big statue and some of the, the chief men conspire against Daniel because they know he won't worship the, the image, that they make a law and they dupe the king and uh, Daniel's set to be killed along with all the, the others who, uh, who are not uh, bowing down. And in focus here is actually Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so the king decides to throw them in a fiery furnace. And he proclaims, what God can defy my punishment? He says in chapter 3, verse 15, And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And this thing is set up. So these guys get thrown into the, into the fiery furnace. It's stoked, we're told, seven times hotter than normal. So hot that the guys who threw them in were killed. But rather than seeing these faithful men destroyed, Nebuchadnezzar looks up. And in verse 25, he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. God is Lord over nature. Fire does not harm when God is there protecting. And these three men and the Holy One stand with them and withstand the flames. And Nebuchadnezzar responds in awe, saying, There is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. God's universal dominion extends to his dominion over nature and of rescuing his people. In chapter 4, we learn that God is the giver of kingdoms and the punisher of the wicked. And in this chapter... Nebuchadnezzar grows proud. He grows proud. And because of his pride, he is made to eat grass like an ox and to live like a goat in the field, like a wild man. In verse 17, we read, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, which would be angels, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. As Nebuchadnezzar is about to be made quite low. We read in verse 28, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven among men, from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. And at the end, 
We read, now I, when he was restored, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. In chapter 5, we read of a new king. The same thing happens. He rises up in pride. And uh, his name was Belshazzar, by the way. And he's sitting at a feast. The wine's so good, he orders the, the gold vessels and silver vessels that were stolen from the temple in Jerusalem. He says, bring those out. And they fill, they're partying with the holy elements from the temple. And there's this writing that goes on the wall. And I'll let you read that for, uh, for yourselves. But at the end of it, he is indicted, but verse 23, Belshazzar is indicted, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which you do not see or hear or know but the God in whose hand is your breath, in whose are all your ways, you have not honored. And in verse 30, we read that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The very breath in our lungs is by God's decree, friends. And all our ways are his. They're in the hands of God. And God brings down the proud. We read Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This is another a little hint at who is in charge. Normally an empire does not re- an emperor does not receive a kingdom. An emperor takes a kingdom. But we read Belshazzar is killed and Darius the Mede receives the kingdom from the hand of God. And in chapter 6, we learn that God is the God who shuts the mouths of lions. And of course, Daniel is thrown in due to a political intrigue when the, the, all the people of the realm were forbidden to pray to anyone but to Uh, to the king, to Darius, but he still goes on praying to the Lord. He's thrown in the lion's den and God spares him. Verse 22, my God sent his angel, as Daniel says to Darius afterwards, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. And in response, Darius says, Of Yahweh, of the God of Daniel, He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall not be destroyed, and His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. All of this is by the hand of of God, and even pagan kings came to see it. 
So chapters 1 to 6 show us in a number of ways, both emphatic statements and by the stories themselves, that God's dominion is universal over all things. The second part of the book shows us that God will give universal dominion to his people at the end of days. That's the second point. God will give universal dominion to his people at the end of days. And we're going to, rather than it would be take too much time to go through all of these kind of intricate visions, I'm going to focus on chapter 7 primarily, and then we will tie it to the New Testament uh, for because that's the time that we have today. But as I've mentioned already, the second part of Daniel turns to this apocalyptic imagery. And it's not meant to envision actual like beasts with multiple heads. It's a way of making a point. There's a whole body of literature. Uh, maybe sometime I'll remember, but I have a book in my library about that thick of Jewish apocalyptic literature using the same kinds of images and sayings and phrases as you read in Revelation, as you read in Daniel. It was a way of communicating, but it's a dead genre that we don't understand. So ignore those people that try to turn the Bible into a science fiction novel uh, at the end of it because that you're misreading the text if you're, if you're reading it that way. Uh, if you expect to actually see beasts rising up, reigning with multiple heads, you're mistaken and you're missing the point of the genre. But again, we'll, I'll take more time to teach on that when we come to the book of Revelation. At any rate, we will hone in on chapter 7 this morning. And in chapter 7, we learn that the kingdom of God shall be given to the Son of Man. In chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, we read, as Daniel said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so what you will see when you read chapters 7 to 12, is that this universal dominion of God is going to be given to the saints. And here we're told it's going to be given to one like a son of man. And we have this image of this, this son of man coming before the ancient of days. Now, what we probably first think when we read this is that this is Jesus. Jesus is the son of man. And he is. But There's a complicating factor that we see later in chapter 7, and we will resolve it by the end. In chapter 7, verse 18, when this vision is interpreted, so first Daniel's given the vision, one like a son of man before the ancient days, who receives this eternal kingdom and dominion. But then when the vision is interpreted, later in chapter 7, verse 18, We understand, but the saints, plural, of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. 
And, in, uh, and then verse 21, As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And in verse 26, But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So the interpretation is that this kingdom is going to be given to the saints, plural. But when we come to the New Testament, we wrestle with this tension. Is it given to one person or is it given to many? And what we find in the New Testament is that Israel and God's people were never and could never be worthy to receive the kingdom on their own. One had to become a mediator for them to give the kingdom to the people of God. That's why the humanity of Jesus is such an important doctrine. We talk about God, Jesus being fully God and fully man, and we usually emphasize the deity of Christ. But the humanity of Christ is essential because it had to be a faithful man who could inherit the promises as well as die for the people and make atonement for them. It had to be a man. And that's why Paul says there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. That's always struck me as a little bit funny. Why doesn't he say the the Lord Jesus Christ or the Son of God? He says the man. The doctrine of the humanity of Christ is essential. That Jesus becomes the people of God that allows all of us to be adopted into the people of God. And so that resolves the tension of Daniel 7 where it's given to the one like a son of man and yet it's going to be given to the saints. The way that the saints receive this eternal kingdom dominion is through the mediation of the son of man, our Lord Jesus Christ. The son of man is used 86 times in the New Testament referring to Jesus. Jesus is the son of man. But he is the one who shares and gives us the kingdom through him. It's his mediatorial role that we're confessing in the Shorter Catechism right now uh, in in our services. It's his human mediation that shares the kingdom with us as the Son of Man. We read in Matthew 25, 31, for example, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So our means into this eternal kingdom dominion is our Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. 
who was our mediator. That also, my friends, is why theology matters. It's why theology matters. It's why we're starting our Sunday school hour to equip you to understand the importance of theology because it has everything to do with our worship and our understanding of what is ours in Jesus Christ, how we receive these things. So in closing, in the book of Daniel, Daniel, as the book moves on in chapters 8 to 12, he's wondering about when are these things going to take place? When are these things going to happen? And Daniel, at the end, is told to shut these things up for the end of times. So essentially, Daniel's being told it ain't going to be happening anytime soon. Bind up these words. But when we come to the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, John is told, don't bind these up. Don't bind these words up because the time is now. And John's alluding to Daniel 7 in chapter 22. The kingdom is at hand. And in fact, friends, the kingdom of God is now. And it's also not yet. It's that principle we've been talking about these last several weeks. The kingdom is now, but the kingdom is coming. It's just like we're the city of God now, but we're waiting for the city of God to come. It's that now and not yet tension. But God's kingdom rescue plan has begun. It has begun. God is on the move. When Jesus was healing in Matthew 12, he says, But if, the Spirit, if by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It is just like that tension we talked about last week with the resurrection. When Jesus pours the Spirit into our hearts, gives us a new heart, when we're regenerated, we are raised from the dead now. And yet we're still waiting for our bodies to be glorified and raised on the last day. The church age, the time between the comings of Christ, is the time of the now and not yet kingdom. We are, we are tasting in the goodness of the kingdom that is to come. But God also sends us, friends, as part of that rescue plan. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he has received the kingdom. The Son of Man has received the kingdom. But then he tells his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The very work we're doing here our very desire to see this church grow, to find a, a building where we can meet and grow and expand and do more ministry, all these things is part of God's kingdom rescue plan, stretching out his kingdom in real time and in real space for all to see. Part of that rescue plan is our own deliverance. Remember what Paul told the church of Colossae in Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Daniel wrote to give us courage that even if we're strung up on the gallows, 
God is in charge. Whether good times or bad comes for us and this earth, God is on his throne doing his will. And he has prepared, and we know from this side of the cross, has already given us a kingdom that is eternal. And we will reign with him forever. In the book of Revelation, which rounds out all of Scripture, the saints who persevere in Christ are promised to reign with Jesus and rule with Jesus with the rod of iron, uh, pointing back to Psalm 2, that for those who remain faithful to the Lord, they will reign with him in the new creation. Because Jesus will reign forever. We, we of all people, will reign forever as the sons and daughters of God. John writes in Revelation 11, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And this promise is given to you and to me, all who put their faith in Christ. Revelation 22, when our Lord returns and the new creation is installed, we read from John, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is our hope, friends. When the folly of politicians and the folly of dictators or the folly of wicked bosses or teachers or whoever it is reigns on this earth, this is our hope. You and I will reign because there is one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who died in our place and who has already been raised and elevated and has received the kingdom and sends us out. This is our hope. This is our charge. This is the food for our souls as we go on mission for Jesus. If you are not quite there yet with the sovereignty of God, I I challenge you, I exhort you to not do another thing until you come to terms with that. You will never find freedom and lasting joy until you see God's hand over everything and the goodness that he's the one in charge. Not Nebuchadnezzar, not Darius, not Putin, not Trump, not whoever else it might be, not your boss at work, God. And not even us, because we'd screw it up too. Thanks be to God for his universal kingdom dominion. And may you find joy and liberation and hope as you study that book. Let's pray.